Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the applications for marijuana store licenses open up, but Hamilton still hasn't decided on whether or not to allow them. Advocates for students with disabilities are calling on the Ontario government to stop school exclusions, and free speech policies are now in effect on colleges and university campuses across Ontario. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Coming up uh, very shortly in the next couple of weeks, of course, is, uh, well, the government policy, the Ontario government and the federal government policy uh, vis-a-vis cannabis and the opportunity for communities such as Hamilton to uh, opt in or opt out when it comes to bricks and mortar and actually have shops that are going to sell these products in uh, their communities. Now, it's been a hotly debated subject. Uh, We've got until the 22nd of this month to actually come up with a decision now, I know, I guess about a week from today, Hamilton City Council is going to try to wrestle with this thing again. Uh, they put it off and asked staff for some more information. I'm not so sure there's a whole lot of more information they could uh, get for them at this stage. But uh, what is Hamilton's option on this, and how is this thing going to roll out? And uh, by the way, we're also going to talk a little bit later on uh, with uh, some folks that may be interested in actually applying for some of these licenses. Uh, but to the Hamilton situation and the Hamilton perspective on this, uh, we welcome Jason Farr, the counselor for Ward 2 downtown, to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Happy New Year, Jay. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill, and Happy New Year to you. Let's uh, let's get into this. Uh, we I know that council talked about this late last year, and there were a couple of sessions about this. You heard from some delegations. Uh, is, is it next Monday? Is it a week today that you guys are going to talk about this again? Yes, and on the very day that the uh, province will issue those uh, 25 licenses. So it would be interesting. We'll have a special council meeting, so no more delegations. That's uh, passed. That GIC was, as you mentioned, some weeks ago. And it'll be later in the day that we hold our special council meeting on this loan topic, uh, following the Board of Health, so likely around 3 in the afternoon. So, and by the way, I'm glad you brought this up about the lottery, because this is how these 25 licenses are going to be doled out. Uh, You can make application for it. There's a fee, obviously, a $75 fee Mm -hmm. uh, to submit for an expression of interest. Uh, Those selected through the lottery have five business days to turn in their application and a $6,000 non-refundable fee and a $50,000 letter of credit. So obviously they're weeding out the, uh, the, the folks that may be just passively interested in this. You better, you, you got to have a business case and got to have some money behind you if you're going to get one of these licenses. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's uh, considerable money behind our uh, LPs, uh, legal producers in this area and areas throughout Canada, but they're uh, not eligible for this first round in Ontario. So these are definitively the mon posh operations they're not affiliated and can't be affiliated this first time around anyway to licensed producers so yeah that's uh it's it's quite a uh not only a, a steep amount early to acquire that license should you be one of the lucky 25 but uh, not a lot of uh window of time uh, to uh, respond to uh, the, the request for a proposal. Now, will you know when council starts discussing this discussing this rather in a week or so uh who actually won these licenses uh, I looked at the timeline this morning, and I guess it all depends on how quickly a winner responds. I mean, we have until January 22nd. Uh, what I do think we will be aware of, at least in Hamilton, is as it relates to the seven that will be allocated to what we're calling Western Ontario, and Hamilton's part of Western Ontario, or at yeah. least that footprint, um, we'll know how many. We may not know who, but we'll know how many. Uh, in all likelihood, we'll also know how, who. Uh, but at this point, it's hard to say with these tight timelines. Well, the reason I'm asking is, obviously, if, if one of the, the people that wins one of these lotteries and gets one of these licenses, or the opportunity for them, uh, decides that they want to put one here, is that going to have an influence on council's decision? Yeah, well, again, with the timing, it's, it's um, you know, I mean, this is a council meeting on the 14th, so we'll have already decided on the 14th and that on the very day that the province announces uh, who these uh, license these winners are these license holders will be so uh, I, I would be I'd be surprised if uh, by the end of uh, workday five o'clock on the fourteenth next Monday we actually know who the two or three or however many of the seven who are eligible in our entire region are so I, I don't think it will to be honest when you say seven for Southern Ontario does that include the GTA. Seven for Western Ontario. So okay. I think what's happened is there's five regions the province has uh, uh, put together for the 25 in the lottery. And uh, Toronto, seven. Western Ontario, which includes Hamilton and Niagara. And then you had West London and Kitchener-Waterloo and so forth. They get another seven. And then the other three regions uh, 
divvy up the remaining eleven or so. All right, so so that's that's how this is going to come down. So there's a pretty po- strong possibility, uh, just by the numbers, that uh, this is uh, there's probably going to be the opportunity uh, for at least one, two, or who who knows how many of these things here in the Hamilton Burlington area. Now, when we talked before Christmas, Jay, obviously council decided to kick this thing down the road because they said, some of your colleagues anyway, said they wanted to get more information on this. Uh, And you suggested that there was going to be some discussion. I know it's been the holidays and everybody's had some time off and they're just getting back to work for many of us after about 14, 15 days off. Uh, Do you get the sense that that some of your colleagues have come to a conclusion and come to a decision on this? Because they seem rather, well, you know, sitting on the fence, I guess, is maybe the best way to express it. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a, again, when you and I last talked, I said it was a hard call going into the meeting, and I suggested and predicted maybe we'll get a tabling. We almost didn't. Two votes uh, shot down, and then the third uh, brought down by the mayor to uh, table to give more time to get some more answers actually did pass, and that was uh, a ruling to, uh, on Councilor Marula's motion to opt out. So uh, what we did ask that day was for a, a you know a plethora of more info and and so over the holidays uh, some staff maybe were working a little more than they may have uh, expected to, during the shutdown to get some of those answers but uh, uh, the reality is I mean on the 14th we're going to make a decision one way or the other because uh, you know you only have until January 22nd or or six other working days six uh, additional working days to let the province know and of course if we if we opt in, we're in and we're eligible for that additional funding. And, and police were pretty clear to us in our general issues committee when we talked about this last as a council and the mayor uh, that they, they need to they require the, the revenue, the, 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 the tools to enforce, and that costs money. And opting in gets that uh, those funds. Uh, how that works and how much exactly, uh, you know, those, those answers should come our way come Monday on the 14th. Uh, but the reality is, I mean, you know, we have uh, still um, a large number of illegal shops in um, this city. There's illegal shops in every city. It seems to be a little bit disproportionate when you take a look at Hamilton and the per capita uh, statistics there. But uh, all of us, I think, I think every one of us would agree that these illegal shops have got to go, whether whether you're on the opt-in side of the debate or whether you're on the opt-out side of the debate. And many of us who are on the opt-in, and I'm one of them, um, feel that, you know, we would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we opt out, even though the argument is, well, you can always opt in at a later date, but you're not eligible, though, if you opt in at that later date after January 22nd for the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the key is, as well, that $100 million, uh, additional revenue, uh, 50-50 split on the excise tax above and beyond $100 million, which which, you know, it's a considerable sum when you consider the popularity. And when you consider, and I heard your interview with Brad Clark about some of these statistics, that, you know, these retail operations could account for as much as 50%, the projections are, of, of you know, legal cannabis sales across this country. And Ontario, 38%. Of, of, uh, of, of the business. So there's, there's a clear a desire for folks to shop for cannabis, a legal product in Ontario, uh, at retail operation. Let me ask you about the policing costs, because it seems to be one of the, 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 the tough issues that some of your colleagues are having to deal with here. And, and I know some of them that are, are leaning towards opting out is suggesting that the money that the province is offering uh, for enforcement, et cetera, et cetera, is not nearly enough. And, and it never is. I mean, I've never, ever seen anybody at municipal government say, boy, that's exactly what we needed to the penny. There's always going to be that that argument about that. But having said that, you're already incurring those costs. When I talked to Chief Gert about this a couple of weeks ago, I think at its peak there were something like 82 illegal shops operating here in Hamilton, and those costs had to be absorbed by police services at that time. What you're getting here is an opportunity from the province to say, we'll help defray some of those costs by throwing money at you. I, I yeah. can't see why council would turn their back on that. Yeah, I mean, the reality is now we have illegal shops throughout our city, a, a large portion uh, you know, downtown and in the lower city, uh, but they're all over the city, and uh, we have zero funds. So the reality is if we do opt in, we at least get some and, and potentially a, a lot more than, than we may be expecting when you consider, um, you know, this is uh, going to be, it is already quite obviously a popular legal product and, and, you know, above a hundred million in, in revenue, uh, excise tax is, is going to be split amongst those who opt in before January 22nd. And, and, you know, what, 
Hamilton Police Services is telling us now where we have a, a city that has a, a, a cop-to-pop ratio, as they call it, uh, that, that, you know, is greater than most cities in Canada and Ontario. They have many, many other challenges, and uh, they have priorities. And, you know, Dan Kinsella has vested in this file, has shared with council on more than one occasion that, you know, we have to prioritize when we police. And, and you know, given all of our other priorities, given our cop-to-pop ratio in the city of Hamilton, it's hard for us to enforce with zero budget. So at least in this case of opting in, they'll have, uh, you know, a much greater budget to, you know, enforce these illegal shops. And I think, again, uh, in fact, I know all of council would like to see these illegal shops uh, obliterated from this market and every other market because you don't know where they're getting the product from. And that's a pretty scary scenario. You don't know who they're serving their product to. You don't know if they're staff or trained. You don't even know who they are. Well, you don't know what you're buying. And you don't know what you're buying. I mean, that's the key. Uh, It's, it's a, Great concern. You and I have talked many times on your program, and I think we're like-minded on, on doing all we can, even thinking outside the box as it relates to tackling the opioid crisis. While it may be a stretch for some in the cannabis industry, the reality is if you're an illegal uh, shop owner selling can- cannabis and, and who knows what else, um, and, and no one knows where that product is coming from, it, it, there, there is the potential that it, that, that it can be spiked with some illegal uh, opiate. And, and, you know, we have this fentanyl crisis, this uh, fentanyl crisis going on in our city and across the nation, across North America. And, you know, a little spec to, to, to beef up the product uh, by some uh, uh, nefarious operator who's just looking for some quick cash while the city doesn't have the funds to enforce them. Who knows what they may do to try to compete in this illegal market. So you, you want to eliminate the possibility of, uh, of uh, a product that uh, that that is unfamiliar and uh, who knows where it's from, uh, from entering into this market and being sold in this market. Is there some fear-mongering going on here uh, with some of the, the arguments that are being made? And, you know, about radial separation, we don't want them within so many uh, meters of schools, etc. And I'm not suggesting they're ever going to be side-by-side. But and anybody who's granted a license in this lottery doesn't want to lose it because this is going to be a cash cow no. for them. They're not They're not going to abuse this. No, I mean it, there's it, always it, some it, bad operators. I mean, I sat on licensing for years when I was on city council, and yeah, every now and then there'd be a bar owner who was just a you know a, a bad a bad operator. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's once in a blue moon, and I expect the same ratio will apply once these shops open. Well, for sure, and and you know the the whole point, and you know this from being a past uh, licensing committee member. You can't close down a business that doesn't have a city license if we don't have that category. We don't have the authority locally to shut shut down as as a as a bylaw enforcement. Uh, Hamilton police obviously have to go through a great onerous task over many days ahead of time, during and then afterwards securing the property, and it's at a great cost, not only operationally, uh, uh, but but salary wise and the, the amount of officers they need. But but you know, I mean, that's the other advantage of opting in because now locally there is that category, and therefore we can we can partner with police. In, on the enforcement side, we can shutter locally as uh, enforcement, bylaw enforcement, and, and we can point to um, the fact that we've opted in and therefore we've created the license in the city as it stands now. We don't have that. If we opt out, we don't have that. And it really becomes a, a local and OPP issue. And, and clearly since I think uh, with the date was October 17th, if I'm not mistaken, when it became legal across the nation, uh, we've had a challenge here in Hamilton shutting down the illegal operators. They still very much exist. Uh, more than half of them, it appeared, because you talked about Girton at its peak, 82. We're at about 30, let's say, right now in the city of Hamilton. Many volunteered to uh, shut their doors, these illegal operators, because they wanted to be eligible to be legal operators. And so it wasn't a, a, a vast sweep of uh, police enforcement or blitzing that shut down uh, more than half of the ones that operated prior to October 17th, it was Ill- it was illegal operators hoping to have valid applications that uh, ultimately we're going to see um, come to fruition and announce 25 anyway, the first phase. But, but uh, listen, if, if council opts out of this, yeah. if anybody on council votes to opt out of this because they think uh, the illegal problem is 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 going to be, it's, it's only going to get worse. I mean, if you don't allow legal shops, the illegal ones are going to start popping up all over again, and you'll be back up to 82 before you know it. That, that is my fear. I mean, we now have Hamilton Police Services on public record saying they're challenged 
as it relates to enforcement. Since October 17th, we haven't seen a great deal of uh, uh, Ontario Provincial Police activity in this jur- jurisdiction. They have their other jurisdictions. And, and, and so, you know, while some of us, including myself, many, many months ago leading up to October 17th and the legalization across the nation, thought, okay, well, if the pr- province is charged with the regulation and enforcement, then the province is going to come in here with their white cowboy hats and they're going to close everybody down. They're going to ins- ass- assist us. But that hasn't happened either. So that is, a, a, in, in my in my uh, feelings on this particular issue, I am right with you, Bill. I, I, I fear that we opt out and we're going to get back to the Wild West. It'll just be a localized Wild West here in the city. We're going to get, a, who knows, past 80 uh, illegal shops because we're, we've already sent the message that we're, we're challenged in, form in, in, the, in terms of the revenue, that the non-revenue we get right now. But we're, we're, we're challenged in terms of enforcement because we don't have the resources. Downtown Councilor Jason Farr. Jay, thanks as always for this. Appreciate the update. And I know we'll talk again as uh, we get closer to this date. Talk Thank to you, you soon. Bye bye. You. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So, uh, with the uh, Ontario government lottery for the uh, uh, dispersal of, of these uh, licenses, I guess, for the pot shots, the, the bricks and mortar shops that are going to be going on, only 25. But keep in mind, this is only the first round. And uh, the government uh, has justified the, the 25 only. Uh, by suggesting that there's actually a shortage of product right now, and they they don't blame themselves for that. They say until that gets straightened away, that's all that's going to be handed out. There probably will be more later on. So who are these people that are applying for it, and what's it going to look like? Well, we're going to talk to one of the people that hopes to be one of the successful applicants. Olivia Brown is uh, with Professional Cannabis Consulting here in Hamilton, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us her take on this. Olivia, thank you so much for the time, and Happy New Year. Oh, happy New Year to you too, and thank you for so much for having me. Well, this is this is interesting stuff because I still, as I was just saying with Councillor Farr a few minutes ago, still think there's a lot of misconceptions about who these people are, who the users are, uh, and and what this is all about. And and I don't know if this is born from from fear mongering or just a lack of information about this sort of thing. But maybe we can just set the record straight on some of these issues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I actually think it's lack of information because remember, we not, this hasn't been done before. We're doing things that that have never been done before. So there's gonna there's gonna need to be a lot of time and, and patience with this. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about you know, you've been in in this obviously, and let's maybe identify exactly who you're working for. What is professional ca- cannabis consulting? Um, actually, I am a company based out of Hamilton. Um, we have a satellite office in Toronto, and we actually offer many services from cannabis-infused reflexology to licensed producer and craft cannabis application and sales applications. So we, we kind of do everything. This is a growth industry. Yes, absolutely. Yes, if it, the, the key to success in the cannabis industry is actually open-mindedness and willingness to do new things. I, I mean, as I'm learning more about this, and, and I guess like a lot of other people over the holidays, as families and friends get together, uh, this subject came up from time to time, obviously, and 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 I, and I got I think probably uh, the overwhelming majority of people are saying, yeah, let's go ahead and do this, but they still got some questions about this. But uh, as I hear how this is rolling out in other jurisdictions, we're really kind of stout doing this with baby steps here in Ontario, aren't we? Yeah, if we look at cities like you know Washington and, and Colorado and, and even uh, Vancouver, um, who's been doing this for about fifteen twenty years with you know no problems. I heard your previous guest mention, you know, with the illegal or illicit. I like to call them craft cannabis suppliers because um, these people they they don't want to be illegal. That that's not what they want. Um, they actually do want to to be legal. Uh, well, as by definition, they are right now illegal, and, and that raises some of the problems. Uh, but mind you, I've talked to some of those operators. Some have closed down since we've talked. Uh, others are still trying to do what they're doing. Uh, but you're right, they hope to be legitimate at some point. But now that the uh, the government seems to have caught up with the industry, I, I'm wondering if these two lines are going to intersect at some point. Um, I, I, I do believe, just as a civilian, that the illegal uh, stores need to be dealt with uh, swiftly um, and with a little bit of force because they, they kind of keep reopening. Uh, I'm more concerned about the loss of, of tax revenue more than, you know, the, the community. I don't think there is a danger with cannabis. I I don't believe people are adding things to it or or, or doing anything. It's, it's a plant and those people that use cannabis are quite astute at, uh, you know, detecting if it's good quality or not. 
Yeah, quality control seems to be one of the, 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 the sticking points for an awful lot of people, but do you think it's a non-issue? Uh, oh, no, I didn't say that. It, of course, is an issue, but I, I, I think currently the, the illicit stores are doing more good than harm. I, I think they just need a chance um, to, to enter the legal market. So how is quality control ensured in, in, these, in these operations? Let's talk about the 25 that are going to be legal right off the bat, uh, because those are the ones where we can at least point to some parameters and some rules. Yeah, absolutely. And this is quite exciting because uh, quality control um, is one of my specialties. Actually taking uh, a bunch of courses that are approved by Health Canada in the cannabis industry. So there, there are um, different lab testings that you can do, um, and they will show you the percentage of THC and also what's in, you, in it, like particulate, like bacteria and fungus, uh, even pesticides, things like that. So, so this, this is basically the set of rules that anybody who's going to be one of these 25 original uh, uh, licensees are going to have to adhere to. Uh, are they doing it by and large in the industry already, Olivia? Yes, absolutely. And that was actually one of the surprising things that I learned um, kind of working beside or trying to get the illicit market uh, to, to follow the rules and comply is that they, they are already doing testing um, quite extensively because you have to remember, they're, even though they're illicit, they're still a business. So, um, and I'm just, I'm just really concerned with, with the tax revenue and the community benefit that we're losing. Um, so there is a big illicit dispensary. There's a few of them in Hamilton. The name is Georgia Peach. And uh, just from what I gather, um, just from the community, all of the locations um, combined are making about $65,000 per day. Uh, that equates to around a million dollars per month that we're losing. Um, so with this lottery, 25 is a good start, um, but I think they implied in the next six months there will be another 25 or 50 picked. Well, the long-term goal, the government has told us the long-term goal is to, is to not put a ceiling on it at all. That's fantastic. That's great. Because you have to remember, with these illicit dispensaries, we can't ignore the fact that they're thriving. They're not just successful or, you know, um, helping people. They are thriving. So the citizens of Hamilton are already voting with their dollars um, that they want this. So I, I think it would be a huge, huge mistake for, for Hamilton to opt out. The people are already voting, and they're voting with their dollars. I, I know there's also a concern, Olivia, and I'd like you to address this, about uh, proximity to schools, daycares, things of this nature. And, and, and I, I can understand the concern, but I mean, I, I'm equally concerned about the sale of tobacco near schools. Uh, uh, you know, and there's not a whole lot they seem to be able to do about that. That's, that's actually a, a great point. I never looked at it like that. Um, but, but I believe the province and the, and the federal uh, regulations uh, with safety um, are, are, I don't think they're, they're too much. I, I think this plant um, should be respected. Uh, you know, much like firearms, it's, it's a very powerful plant, uh, medically and psychoactively, and I think it should be, you know, treated with, with kid gloves. I don't think um, it should be near schools. Uh, I don't think it should be near daycares, and I completely agree with the safe buffer, buffering uh, regulations. Which the government has already introduced, and, and I know that some city councillors here in Hamilton, yep. I don't think yes. it goes so the far enough. Has released um, a set of boundaries guidelines that it would like the municipalities to follow, and uh, absolutely. There, there's another element to this too that I think we, we need to put on the table. Uh, you mentioned Health Canada and 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 then public health and a number of other agencies uh, within the the specter of the government that are involved in this. Uh, this is by no means the government saying everything's fine. These guys get a clean bill of health. This stuff is harmless. They understand that there can be side effects. They understand that overuse can also have problems, not unlike alcohol, certainly not unlike tobacco, which is why there are regulations that are put in place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, this past weekend, um, I was actually called to St. Joe's Hospital to help consult with a cannabis overdose case. So it absolutely can happen. It absolutely does happen. And uh, we, we actually we need to be responsible citizens and, and keep the community safe, no matter what that looks like. Well, I mean, if, if that's the case, and, and if public education is going to be a part of that, 
I, I guess, safety program that's going to be involved in this. It's, it's a good idea to get it out of the alleys and out in the open, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think education is key. Um, a few other uh, professionals um, have, like myself, with the, with consulting companies, had off, have offered their services to local radio stations and even uh, public schools doing presentations to help kids and, and children understand, you know, that this, this is a substance that you do have to be careful with. You've, you've been involved in this for a while, as you mentioned, with professional yes. cannabis consulting. Uh, do you think people actually understand, because this is new, obviously, to Ontario, do they understand the magnitude of this industry, just how large it's becoming, not just uh, in, in jurisdictions where this has already happened, but right here in Ontario? No, actually, nobody is, is used to this or can, or can kind of wrap their heads around this. Um, this industry is bigger than the entire agricultural industry. It's bigger. This industry growth is the fastest growth I've seen in any industry ever. Mining, agricultural, anything you can name, cannabis beats it. Well, because I know that Chamber of Commerce President Keenan Loomis approached council and, and was actually one of the delegations at the council meeting last month, uh, and, and he was, uh, I guess, derided in some circles for comparing uh, cannabis to the new steel And when it comes to industry here in Hamilton. I know some people are saying, come on, let's get realistic about this. Uh, and it oh, won't, no, it, absolutely it, it, it is. It won't, be, it won't be right away. To, yeah, I would actually absolutely compare it to the steel industry, and in fact, I was quoted in saying cannabis is the new steel industry. If you have a good idea, a good business, or a skilled trade, there is room for you in this industry. Uh, and and the magnitude of this that I talked about just a couple of seconds ago, I find to be astounding. Uh, the number of uh, of businesses that I'm seeing, uh, you know, large tracts of lands now, and these are processing plants that are being developed. I mean, there there there's a lot of money behind this, and this is legal money. This is a, a business enterprise that's that's going on. This is not the black market. Oh yeah, of course, and this is a fantastic opportunity um, for civilians and individuals and families to. Uh, really, really bulk up their portfolio. You don't have to work with cannabis um, to make money in this industry. You can simply invest, or if you have an already existing company, um, you can kind of add, add or merge in with the cannabis industry without disrupting your current business. Let me ask you about the process. Uh, you've been studying this, Olivia. What do you think about the way the province is rolling this out with, with this lottery system and, and, and the, the granting of these first 25 licenses? Are you comfortable with it? Um, I, I'm actually really, really pleased with uh, the province. I, I'm a little not happiest with the municipalities kind of flip-flopping, especially Hamilton. Um, I think they need to make a decision and, and stick with it. Uh, but... I just think it, it's fantastic. Uh, people have to remember, we live in Canada, Ontario. So Ontario is one of the you know, m- more stricter of the provinces. And a lot of the other provinces look to Ontario for regulation. So the fact that Ontario has taken the time to really put together um, a fantastic starting point for the cannabis industry to merge in Ontario... I think it's fantastic, and I, I couldn't have done a better job myself. I, I'm beyond happy um, with what they're with what they're bringing out. The 25, the lottery. Um, the only part that uh, annoyed me about the lottery was they're putting the alcohol and gaming board in charge of the actual lottery. Yeah, I believe they should have used uh, a, a third party. Well, and, and you're not the first one that suggested that, and about some yeah. concern about that. Uh, and, and the government obviously is suggesting, well, it's better than the LCBO idea that the previous government had. And I, I, I grant that. Yeah, this is correct. This yeah, is, this is moving it into the private sector, and that, that's, that's a good idea. That's giving people an opportunity. Is there a concern, though, uh, for those of you in the industry, though, Olivia, that these first 25, I understand this is a lottery, and it, you know I, that conjures up this image of uh, they're just <laughs> going to reach into a drum and pull a name out and say, Olivia Brown. Yeah, uh, nobody knows, yeah. We don't yeah. know exactly how this is going to work. But uh, there's a concern here that uh, these first 25 are probably going to go to mega corporations as opposed to, well, the mom-and-pop operations, small-town yeah. operators. Yeah, and uh, my, my husband, uh, who's uh, been in the, the head of the environmental department uh, for DeFasco for a number of years, um, he actually compared, uh, compared it to the gas station and the gas industry. So you don't see a lot of mom-and-pop gas stations anymore uh, because for the average person there's just no money in it. The, the taxes that are due 
um, is, is just astronomical, and it's very similar to the cannabis industry. Um, there's not a lot of civilians trying to open a store by themselves. You, you basically have to have a team of people um, that are willing to comply. Well, I mean, the financial situations that uh, the government's talking about here, I mean, uh, they're looking not just for a business plan, et cetera, but a substantial amount of money and, and a line yeah. of credit here. So, I mean, you, you've got oh, yeah. you, to do, cross your T's and dot your I's, don't you? Absolutely. We actually got a uh, corporate and a contract lawyer to help us with the application. So uh, it, it's 77 pages long. Like uh, the, uh, the average person couldn't fill it out by themselves anyway. Olivia, there's a concern about the black market and has been for many, many years now. Uh, will the legalization of this and the opening of these, well, first of all, 25 stores, is it going to, to decrease the, 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 the dependence on the black market? Are people going to say, okay, I'm not going there anymore. I'm going to go to a legitimate store. Uh, no, actually, the funny thing about the illegal market is it's only illegal because they made it illegal 80 years ago. So this is what happens when prohibition things kind of happen. When you try and stop people from doing what they want, they're usually going to do it anyway, just maybe quietly. So I find with the underground or the, or the craft cannabis or illicit market, um, they're actually quite important for market research um, and for getting new products out into the open. So you've got people who absolutely love cannabis and they're using it for whatever reason, whether it's pain or anxiety. They're in their homes. They may have their legal prescriptions, so they're allowed to you know, make an oil or an edible or, or a tea. So these people have used cannabis and found something that works for them and they're just trying to tell their friends and family, hey, listen, I've discovered this. You don't have to smoke it. And it's still very medically viable to treat many, many, many different illnesses. So these, these craft people, they're not trying to do anything illegal. It's just because of the current laws. Well, one of the concerns that, that I can see happening here is, yes. is, and you just mentioned edibles, for instance. Uh, in in yeah. this first round of licenses, for the, the the government's giving out, uh, they're not allowing the sale of edibles. So, so that's if you want that, and if that's where you're looking, and the product you're looking for, you've got to go to the black market. Are you concerned that the government didn't go all in at this right from the beginning? Uh, no, because they were actually really smart in the ha- in how they did it. First, they uh, classified it as a food, which is which is the smartest thing you could have done. So, with processing. Um, we have to adhere to the food processing regulations, which in Canada is very, very strict and high compared mm-hmm. to the states and other countries. So my belief that the fact that the province is going to be so strict and highly regulated with the food production part, including edibles, I think that's fantastic. And I'm not trying to put the craft community down. However, I can't tell you the number of times where I have purchased a cookie or, you know, a brownie or something like that. And like you said, you don't know what's in it. I'm sure there was a dog hair or whatever. I don't want medicine made in someone's kitchen. I want it made in a professional stainless steel lab kitchen. That, that's what I want. So I think the fact that the province is going, moving a little slower with the food part is the smartest thing they can do. Well, as they say, oftentimes with government projects, I know there's always going to be an argument and, and a concern about governments moving too slowly, but I'd rather get it right than get it first. And that's exactly what Ontario is doing. They have looked at Colorado and Washington and even B.C. Um, and looked at what does work and what doesn't work. So they're not stupid, and this is Ontario, and I'm very, very proud and honoured and happy to live here and to have, and to have the, the province... Um, really taking, if they're being so serious with this, they must know that this is going to be, you know, a big issue for the next, I would say, 20, 30 years. This is going to be a hot topic in Canada. Well, it's going to be a hot topic over the next 10 or 15 days, especially as these licenses roll out. Olivia, thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch as this uh, happens over the next few days. I really appreciate the time today. Take care. Olivia Brown, who of course works right here in Hamilton, her office for professional cannabis consulting uh, down on the cotton factory. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With the uh, coming of 2019 uh, comes a a new policy that the uh, Ontario government has asked uh, colleges and universities to adhere to and actually develop. Uh, and it's uh, to do with free speech. Uh, free speech policies are now in effect on colleges and university campuses right across Ontario. 
uh, after they were told that uh, it had to be done by January the 1st. Uh, they say, uh, Linda Franklin of College Ontario says, uh, this strikes a balance. It gives people some guidance. Uh, not everybody's happy with the guidelines, and not everybody's happy with the policy. Joining us to talk about this is David M. Haskell, Ph.D., Associate Professor in Digital Media and Journalism, Religion, and Culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Let me back up a little bit and talk about why this uh, this government had to come in and, I guess, step in between what seemed to be uh, a, a conflicted area here between uh, free speech, freedom of expression, and well, I, I'm not even sure what the justification would be. I guess some people are saying it's it's really just a I, I guess a form of of, of blocking uh, the idea of free speech and ideas that may be hurtful to other people. How do you find the middle ground on this, David? Uh, well, I mean, if we're going to find the middle ground, we say, well, what's worked for you know the last fifty, sixty years, and it's been uh, what is the criminal code constituted as uh, hate speech. And uh, specifically, we've got sections 318 and 319, which say if you advocate violence against somebody, then you can't say it. And I'm okay with that. And I think that everyone who is um, for free expression, as I am, is also uh, cog- uh, cognizant of the fact that you need to have some limits. And the hate speech provisions of the criminal code are the ideal trick for that. Um, but what we've seen on university campuses is that uh, there's this move to, to equate offense with hate speech, and it's simply not the case. So that means if, if you offend me, I can then say it's violence, and then I can shut you down. And we've been seeing that more and more. So I'm a university professor at Wilfrid Laurier, and I keep my pulse on the finger of what's going on uh, on campuses across Canada. I can tell you there is a crisis of free expression, and um, it's caused by uh, primarily faculty who want to limit free expression because they don't want people to be offended. And, and therein seems to be the crux of the problem, is that they conflate these two ideas. I'm offended by what that individual says or feels or is expressing. Therefore, it's, it's hate speech. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. And we've seen numerous very high-profile examples of this. Uh, uh, probably the most well-known to your listeners may be that of um, Jordan Peterson. Sure. I mean, Jordan has tried to speak at, at different places. He tried to speak, well, he actually did succeed at speaking at Queen's University, but uh, protesters tried to bar him from speaking. They actually blocked the doors with garbage cans, and then someone started yelling, uh, start the place on fire. I mean, the protest, the protesters, the people who are doing this, the protesters, they're the ones who we should really be concerned about. Um, They're getting the message that, uh, that they no longer have to be tolerant of different views. In fact, if you look at the, the data on this, about um, 90% of disruptions of speaking events are caused by left-leaning students and faculty who are trying to shut down uh, conservative or libertarian speakers. How problematic and how troublesome is that for, for somebody, for you in, in academia, David? Uh, colleges and universities are supposed to be the, 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 the planting ground for new ideas, and, and not necessarily to form ideas, but, but to, to expose people to other concepts and other ideas. I mean, that's part of what the education process is, isn't it? Well, it used to be. Um, we used to be, I mean, even at my own university, our motto is uh, uh, always truth. The truth always wins. It, we've got the Latin version, but I thought I'd translate for Thank you. you. <laughs> anyway, the idea was that we'd pursue truth, and that meant that there'd be a battle of ideas, and, and the best idea would sort of rise to the top. But now universities overall, especially in the West, have abdicated the responsibility toward truth, and instead they want to make sure people feel safe. And um, it's become a social justice mandate. So that is to say we're going to make sure that anyone we deem to be marginalized feels safe. And, and in doing that, to make that your primary goal, it means that you have to sacrifice truth, because... It, it, truth sometimes hurts. You know, sometimes when you come to a finding that uh, that shows that a particular behavior uh, really doesn't benefit society, well, the people who are engaging in that behavior may be offended. But so be it. I mean, this is this is what science has been doing since the Enlightenment. But now, many of my colleagues, sadly, are trying to change that because they think that uh, it's more important not to cause offense. Well, I, I know, but have we not learned from history? I mean, we've we've had brilliant minds over the years that tried to teach everybody that the earth was round instead of flat, and and they were chastised uh, not just by academia but by religions at that particular time too. You'd like to think we're a little more enlightened now. 
Well, you'd think, and it's funny because uh, as a scholar of religious studies as well, I look and I see almost parallel kinds of conversations that were happening in in the uh, academy, which was primarily religious people back in the days of Galileo. And you look at um, the people who were for the, the uh, preservation of the doctrine of the faith, or what we'd call the Inquisition, and the things they were saying about Galileo, and it was, well, if his ideas get out, it's going to um, corrupt the minds of the youth. And now I hear colleagues saying the same things about credible research that they want to suppress because they feel that it will lead people down the wrong path. But I give my students more credit. I, I think that um, if, if you have the best arguments available, then you are equipped to come to your own decisions. And, and I think that anything else is really paternalistic. But we're using the same modus operandi that they used uh, during the Inquisition. It's just different subject matter. I mean, in those days, it might have been religion, it might have been science. Uh, now it's climate change, any number of other subjects, uh, certainly political idealism, uh, and, and the way that that seems to have been developed in certain areas right now. And, and it seems as if what a lot of campuses did, at least uh, previously, was simply say, look, I'm afraid of the, of the, the crap this is going to cause, so let's just, just, we're not going to have the discussion. Yeah, well, and we've got, we've got really good evidence that, that this is happening again and again and again. Um, one of, you mentioned climate change. So there's really clear evidence that the, the hub of climate change research is the University of East Anglia in the UK. Yeah. And a few years back, there was a huge scandal uh, that many media didn't pick up, but some in the UK did, that the professors who were in charge of the data were purposely trying to suppress anything that went against their climate change arguments. And and the, the emails were released, and they were, oh, uh, they were caught off guard, but it showed completely that they were trying to use ideological measures instead of empirical measures. And if you didn't meet their ideology, then you didn't get published, and they try and quash your publications. We, say, we see similar stuff happening today. Uh, for example, um, the ideas of, of uh, uh, gender identity, that is such a hot topic that if you try to publish anything outside what is the accepted view now, you, you could lose your job. There was a woman at Brown University who published a study in uh, PLOS One, um, is the name of the journal, PLOS One, I think. Uh, I, I think I've got that right anyway. Um, and it was just showing some controversial data related to gender identity. Um, her university wouldn't even allow her to put that study up on, on their website at Brown University. The, the journal was told, you've got to remove it. Now, this was a peer-reviewed paper that was forced to be removed after the fact because of agitation by uh, activists. And, and again, these activists were university professors. But but uh, again, that seems counterproductive to the to the purpose of academia and university and campuses and in college campuses. Uh, I mean, do they not understand that? For instance, posting that particular article does not mean endorsement. It just means it's it's a topic for discussion. Absolutely, and and this has been the scientific method all the way along. It, science is self correcting only in so far as you allow one opinion to come to the to the fore. Then it's it's analyzed and it's uh, subjected to uh, rigorous testing by others. And if it stands the test, then we say, okay, we're moving closer to what we can call factual truth. And if it's not, then somebody else puts forth another theory. But the problem on university campuses now is as more things become prohibited, where you can't talk about it, where you can't even research it, well, then we're going to get into some areas where we have terrible social science, and scientific conclusions. Because if, if you don't pursue the truth, no matter what the truth is, uh, then you're going to come up with falsehoods. It's, it's funny because, I mean, just getting back to what the conservative government has done here, it is an excellent start, but it is only uh, scratching the surface. I mean, we've got a lot of problems on campuses that uh, this free expression statement really doesn't cover. If we continue along what you've just described, though, David, are, are we not heading down a, a very rocky and dark road uh, where, where education can morph into indoctrination? Oh, well, I, I think that we've already hit that. I mean, that, we're already there. Uh, in fact, I would caution most parents um, to be, be very careful about sending your kids into a program in the arts and humanities unless they have already been exposed to to 
counter-arguments. Um, now, where do you find these counter-arguments? Uh, a good start would be the, the videos and the books by Jordan Peterson. I'm a, I'm a fan of him, um, and he's really been at the forefront of this battle, uh, just trying to get um, both sides heard within the academy. But uh, if you don't have those, those means to get your kid exposed to both sides of an argument or you don't know how to start, I, I would say that uh, a better bet is to send your kid into business or, or the hard sciences, the natural sciences, because at this point, at least they are somewhat inoculated from the ideological forces that have already overtaken arts and humanities. But but how do you how do you correct the the ship though? And when, when you're in it, right in the middle of something like this, uh, and and you see this is happening, and you figure, wait a second, uh, you know, we, we have the right to free expression here. We haven't been able to do this. We're being muzzled by the institution. Well, how do you rate the ship? I think one of the things is you have to realize what's going on. You have to realize that in terms of ideological diversity within the faculty, it's almost non-existent now. Uh, the best data says that. Um, Within the academy, the majority of professors, especially in the arts and humanities, are far left or, or self-described left. Uh, that means that probably about 6% hold a more conservative position. Um, so that's from the faculty point of view. Uh, from the other data has shown that um, the, the way that uh, these left-leaning professors, those who are about 94%, feel about conservative students is just atrocious. Um, they, they actually have the most hostility toward them, and they talk about in other studies. And these have ramifications on the ground. If you're a student who's coming in and doesn't ideologically adhere to where your professor is, that could cost you grades. Um, it could also uh, just affect your socialization on campus. I, I'm reminded of um, uh, just a couple of years back, maybe two years ago, there was a sociology professor at Ryerson, and, uh, and she had a business student in her class, and it was an introductory uh, course in sociology. Anyway, this business student wanted to write a paper on the gender wage gap, but she wanted to say that, in fact, there had been really good studies from business and uh, statistical analysis that showed the gender wage gap actually doesn't exist in terms of um, when, when you eliminate uh, things like um, uh, women taking a break for motherhood, example, for example. There's no discrimination involved, is what she wanted to prove. Well, this professor at Ryerson forbade her from using business sources or statistical sources and insisted that she could only use feminist sources. So here we have a, a, a tenured professor forcing a student not to use empirical data in order to write a paper so that that student would be more ideologically aligned with her, the professor's perspective. And this is not an isolated case. We saw that with the Lindsay Shepard uh, scandal that Certainly. happened at my own university, yeah. where, where these professors, um, one of them, her thesis advisor, she show, she'd shown a video of, of Jordan Peterson in a debate about gender pronouns. The professor brought her in and said, you can't show this video, which aired on public broadcaster TVO. You can't show this. So the, the depth to which the, the professorate has been taken over by ideologues is, is something that I think most Canadians don't realize. And uh, you know what would be something beyond this free expression statement that would be really useful is if the government mandated that professors cannot um, argue a political position in their courses or an ideological position, but actually have to stick to the empirical evidence or the topic of their course. And you might say, well, don't they do that already? And, and I don't think that's happening. No, not in uh, reality it is. Uh, David, we've got to jump in here. We're just about out of time. I really appreciate your perspective on this. This is certainly not the end of this discussion and debate, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again about this later on. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. David Haskell, of course, uh, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Well, how are faculty reacting to this? Well, Warren Smokey Thomas is the president of OPSU, uh, representing many of those members. Uh, Warren Smokey, thanks so much for the time, by the way. Happy New Year. I'm glad to, uh, to have you back on the program today. How, yeah. how, how, are, how are faculty reacting to this? There are those, uh, I think including uh, Professor Haskell that we just talked to, that said, look, at this is effectively a gag order against uh, some members of the faculty. Yes, well, part of the faculty strike in the community colleges was over uh, academic freedom. 
was was over basically free speech. So really buttresses the fact that college management and the government uh, are supporting her call. You know, as a reason they were on strike, it's pretty obvious now. So they developed this policy with absolutely no input from uh, faculty, professors, or any other staff that we're aware of. And only one student from one student group. Now, there's three big student uh, associations that I'm aware of. There might be more, but I know there's three for sure. And only one student was there. Uh, what a burden to put on that one student. So then they, uh, you know, they based it on the uh, Chicago University plan. Well, when you look at the policy, it's almost identical. And uh, so I would just point out that we live in Canada and not the USA. I think freedom of speech means something different up here than it does there. So they're, they're shutting everybody out. So when you're basically developing a free speech policy, uh, you gag everybody and don't let anybody have any input. And uh, so I, I don't know. That one still baffles me uh, how they could just. But but how, Smokey? How can they develop a policy that effectively is going to have a direct impact on how faculty do their jobs, but not in, in, involve how faculty in in the conversation about it? Well, that's what we're calling on them to strike the table and start over. Uh, and and I guess how can they do it? I, I arrogance. I don't know. Um, um, I guess I think arrogance really comes down desire to control. Like there, what's really going to be key here is how they interpret their flexibility they've given themselves the right to limit protest, to limit speaking against something, to limit all manner of things. Whereas a thing called the Charter of Rights in Canada that allows for freedom of association, freedom of assembly. So I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I predict we're going to have a lots of uh, dust-ups over that particular point in particular. And, you know, if I could just say to student, uh, you know, you're about to inherit an earth that was pretty much messed up by my generation and uh, some who have followed uh, my generation, and uh, it's going to be yours to fix. So I wouldn't, to all these students, I would hope that they don't let anybody limit their right to speak out, their right to assembly, their right to protest, because it's only through, I mean, I know enough about history to know this, only through protest, through speaking out, that anything changes governments and and bosses aren't really going to hand out anything good to people without you know you have to take it from them rather than have it handed to you yeah and this limit here this this is very very limiting and uh so the division our division executive they're very concerned uh, rm is uh he's really concerned rm kennedy and uh they're going to take they'll take it up through the management ranks again but uh again they just set the stage here i think for a whole lot of disputes just you know uh fighting uh, interpretations, but that's that manager saying you're going to do it our way or no way. So you have the right to free speech as long as you only say stuff I agree with. Exactly. Exactly. Smokey, thanks so much for the time. Great talking with you again, Smokey. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Thanks, Smokey Thomas, of course, the president of OPSI, representing many of the faculty. Uh, obviously, the policy is in place, but it's, as we were told by Professor Haskell, this is not the end. This is just the beginning of what needs to be a long process. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.